Hello everyone, Cold Open here to tell you a little bit about Intelligent Speech. Intelligent Speech is an online conference happening this year on November 4th between 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and the theme this year is Contingencies when History Meets the Backup Plan. It's going to have a large number of great speakers. It'll have three keynotes, eight roundtables, and 32 individual sessions in four separate virtual rooms. And we are going to be one of the speakers, together with many other brilliant podcasts you've certainly heard of, such as Daniele Bonelli, Trevor from History of Persia, and several other sibling Rexipods. As listeners of the show, you'll be able to have an extra 10% discount if you use the code RULE at checkout. R-U-L-E, RULE. We'll be participating in two panels and have our very own slot where we'll be talking to you about Alexander's side gig, dragon slaying the waters of life and talking to trees. So it's everything you've ever wanted to know about Alexander the Destroyer in the Shahnameh and in Iranian tradition what does he get up to? Well, it's a lot of weird stuff. But anyway, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to So You Think You Can Rule Persia the podcast where we rate and review all the kings of Persia from Diochis to Yazdegerd III. I'm Serial, and my pronouns are they, them. And I'm Umberto, and my pronouns are he, him. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our episode 49, which is Artabanus III. Ah, another Artabanus. A known name. Yes, Artabanus the questionably numbered, because frankly, people disagree on how Artabanus should be numbered, but we're going with the third. Right. I mean, I'm not surprised. We're in that period where you already were some episodes before being like, yeah, we're just, you know, this is this is our canon. This is how we're going to go about it. And some historians disagree. Some historians will disagree. We're sorry. Just look up the dates. This is the one that becomes king in 12. There we are. Yeah, we're just now being you know. like we are being self-consistent. But, yeah, you exactly. Know. Yes, if you look it up on the internet, who knows? I'm happy to be here again and be recording with you, because it's actually been a, a little bit. Not yes. as long as other times, but... It's been a yeah. while, but it's nice to be back. So that's and if you're listening to this episode just right after another, well, uh, lucky you. You don't yes, know. good for you <laughs> living in the future. I hope it's exactly. good. So, Sarah, what do you remember from the last few episodes? Because we've been in a chapter labeled... Oh, God. A series of Um, short-lived kings messed stuff up. Yeah, I remember Musa, obviously. How could I forget? She's the best. And then we had the first heir who was sent to Rome along with all of the brothers Mm -hmm. of Musa's son, right? Yes. Who came back. Well, first we had someone chosen by the nobles who yes, was like, it was Herodes, in a distant relationship, to, which immediately just went to shit. Yes. And then we had this guy come back from Rome. And also the nobles were like, mm, no, he's not doing what we want. So we yeah, don't want he's him. too Roman. Let's kick him out. And then he became and, king of Armenia for a bit. That was fun. Yeah. I don't know what's worse, if the Romans or the nobles from the Persian Empire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, they're not I great. I think I ha- my hatred for them is like nearing th- similar levels. Yeah, the nobles are going to be our constant rival for the rest of like, the this podcast. This is hard enough already. But yeah. Yeah, this is what happens when you get little tribal politics and balloon it out onto a global stage. So everybody's just acting like children or unable Clearly. to make a correct decision. This is hard enough already. You don't have to make it more difficult and stir up more drama. Like, yeah, tr- trust much. me, it, it was fine. It's okay. Yeah. So what are your thoughts for Artabanus? Do you think he is going to break the cycle and finally take over and do a good job? According to how you're (laughs) smiling at me, I'm going to say no. (laughs) So you think he's just going to be, you know, chapter four in a number of short-lived kings? Yeah, we better, like, stretch this intro a little bit more, you know, because I feel like the episode (laughs) is going to be over in ten minutes. Well, we'll see how it goes. I didn't miss anybody, right? We only had those. Nope. We okay. basically had Fratis the fourth, who was Musa's husband. Then we had Musa and Fratakis. They were succeeded by Arodes the third, who was the nobles candidate. He was then succeeded yes. by Venones the first, who was the right. Roman candidate. And now he's been dethroned in favor of Artabanus the third. Let's see how long he lasts. Okay. So let's go back to the beginning of his life and have a look at. Where he comes from? Who is he? Why does he have a claim to the throne? Well, we're not sure about his early life. There's, oh, you know, well. he wasn't important back then, so nobody was keeping count. <laughs> but we know that he derives his claim to the throne from his grandfather, Fratis the Fourth. So we're skipping generations now. But he wasn't in Rome because he was descended from a daughter of Fratis the Fourth. So that's why he was kept in Parthia. And, uh, well, this daughter had married a Saka noble, or a noble from Sistan, a member of the Surain clan. So some of these important eastern families. I see. And that made our little boy, Artabanus, be born as a member of the royal family, but also a very important eastern noble family. So that's good, at least for him. Yeah, so based on the dates, it looks like he was born sometime in the 20s BC, which would make him roughly in his 30s when he first shows up on the stage and we look at his story. So as you remember from last time, uh, a certain faction of the Parthian nobility, given his ancestry, presumably the eastern branch, had become tired of Venonius I for his degenerate Roman ways, and they looked for somebody who would do a better job. Hmm. And, well, Artabanus is a prime candidate for this, because in his youth, he had been made the vassal king of Media Tropatene, which is this vassal kingdom in the north-western part of the empire, so bordering Armenia. And, well, if he already has a kingdom to start with, that means that it's going to be easier for him to take the overall throne. Also, it's close enough to Tesfond that he could just march to the capital and take it, so always bonuses. So as we saw last time, the civil war began. Artabanus had a first attack against Venones, but this was repelled, unfortunately. But later he managed to regroup in the mountains of Media, and there he gathered a second army with which he could attack Venones, and this time he was successful. So in 1280, he managed to enter the capital of Tesiphon, was proclaimed king of kings, and Venones was forced to flee to Armenia, where he just mm-hmm. randomly became king, because... 
well, he's here, so might as well make him. So, okay, well, how do things work? Well, now Artabanus has a pressing issue that he needs to follow up. The thing is that, well, Venones is now the king of Armenia, but that's dangerous because, you know, if Artabanus... It's always managed... dangerous. Have you seen what happens in <laughs> Armenia? Armenia is a dangerous place you need to be careful of. Uh, if you listen to this out of context, it just means, it just might mean like, oh, Armenia is just a dangerous land. But like, no, <laughs> this is purely just because the politics are f***ed and people cannot agree on how to properly like govern this patch of land. Poor Armenians have to be so done with this nonsense. <laughs> the Armenians are just being ping-ponged back and forth between everyone, which is not a fun <sighs> place to be in. But yeah, so Artabanus is concerned that his rival to the throne, Venones, is now king of Armenia. Because that means that Venones could just take an army and try and reconquer Parthia the moment Artabanus' back is turned. So, well, what do we do? Artabanus sends a letter to the Romans, sends a letter to the newly minted Emperor Tiberius, and says, Hey, we know you're approving of Venones, but please make him leave or we'll declare war and make him. Okay? Good. <laughs> nice. Bye-bye. So, okay, looks like the Romans are not really willing to start a new war in the East at this point. You know, they're happy with the situation they're in. They're happy with the Pax Romana that they have going on. So they think, okay, you know what? It's not worth it. Venones is a Parthian prince anyway. We don't want Parthia and Armenia to eventually unify. So, sure, we'll kick away Venones. We'll put up a candidate of our own in his place. Sounds fair. Great. So everybody's very happy now. But now the problem is, who gets to be king of Armenia? Because, well... Artabanus, who's the closest geographically, says, okay, my second eldest son, Orodes, can become king of Armenia. My eldest son is going to be the heir to the overall empire, but my second son, he can have Armenia. That'll be He's nice. free. He yeah, wasn't exactly. doing anything this Tuesday. Do you think the Romans react well to this? Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, clearly not, because they need to put their noses in everything that doesn't yeah. concern them. Yeah, so the Romans think... No, this means that Armenia is now a Parthian vassal. That's not how things work. We want Armenia as our vassal. So in 18 AD, Tiberius sends his adopted son Germanicus from the month oh. of Germanicus. Yeah, bring back Germanicus. Indeed. What's this September nonsense? Ridiculous. Is this September or October? Yeah, it is September. Okay. Yeah, because it goes Julius Caesar, Augustus, and then Germanicus. But yeah, so Germanicus is sent to the east with power to negotiate whatever he wants as long as it's in Rome's favor. So, okay, nice. Germanicus marches into Armenia with a Roman army and places the son of a Roman client king on the throne. Because that's better, clearly. Yeah. What do you think happens to Orodes now? Because he was made king of Armenia and now there's a Roman king of Armenia. How does this work out? Do we go to war or like what's going on? Do we just let the Romans do this? Well, that's the dilemma, because Artabanus thinks, okay, I've just recently taken the throne, things are still a little bit unstable. I could fight this long protracted war with the Romans for Armenia, but it's not worth it. So he just says, okay, Orodes, don't fight, just come back home. 
I'll find you another kingdom to rule. It'll be okay. Mm. I see. Yeah, because the Romans are going through a golden age. They've had Augustus and now Tiberius is doing a fine job at ruling. While in the same ten years, Parthia has gone through four rulers. And just, it's been a constant continuation of coups and murders. So Artabanus decides, let's keep things calm. I don't need an extra reason for the nobles to hate me. I know they're probably scheming something, so let's just be calm. It'll be fine. Also, during this period of negotiation is when we get the end of Venoni's life, because Artabanus, as part of these negotiations, sent a letter to Germanicus and said, Hey, listen, my predecessor Venoni's is somewhere in Syria. Could you send him away? Because, you know, he's a threat to my throne. Also, we could just meet on the Euphrates if you want to talk in person. That would be fun. Hmm. Germanicus didn't make any formal commitments, but he just quietly moved Vononis off into Anatolia, where eventually he was murdered. Hmm. I see. Hooray. But overall, relations between Parthia and Rome remain cordial for the rest of Germanicus's life. Until he dies under mysterious circumstances in Syria, leaving huh. a poor baby orphan Caligula. I'm no. sure that won't impact his psyche. <laughs> At this point, Artabanus is left with a weird situation because he's not in a crisis. That's weird. We're usually in a crisis by now, but I guess I can rule. Is that okay? Is anybody going to murder me if I try to rule? Let's, let's, let's Guys, have a look. is this fine? Because, well, as we saw with all the previous kings, the nobility has grown massively in strength in the last century. Because originally, you know, under Mithridates II, we didn't really hear much about the nobles. They existed, but they weren't burning the empire to the ground every year because they felt like it. Yeah. And there are two main reasons why the nobility has grown like this. When did we go wrong? Yes. When and why did we all go wrong? Well, the first reason is that the empire has no more existential threats. So we don't need the nobility to just give up all its powers to a strong king like Mithridates I or II. Hmm. We don't need a savior to run the kingdom directly and make sure everything runs. It's okay if the king is weak, because if you're a noble, you're just going to be fine. And it's not like the emperor is going to collapse around you. It'll be okay. You sure? So actually, it's even better if you have a weak king, because, well, who cares if you lose a few borderlands at the edge with the Romans? That doesn't matter. If my lands are in the middle of Iran, all I want to do is be able to rule them with more freedom. So you're going to support a weaker king. And the second reason why the nobles are getting very uppity is because there are no more massive conquests. Again, under Mithridates I and II, the empire just ballooned in size, conquering a bunch of new lands. And there the kings could easily make friends with the aristocracy by just giving them some of the new lands, saying, hey, I conquered a new province, here you can have 50% of the lands in it, will you be Mm. my friend? Yes, okay, I'll be your friend. But now that there's just this massive wall with Rome where we've learned that nobody can really push past this, well, there are no new lands to conquer that we can just give to the nobles. The nobles are just in a zero-sum game where they need to Mm. 
fight amongst each other and make sure that they have the most favorable king to them on the throne. So all this system has created basically two parties in the nobility. There is one anti-royal pro-Roman party that wants the king to be as weak as possible and preserve noble privileges. And then there is another more nationalist party that wants the state to be solid and united against foreign threats so that their own interests can be preserved. This is generally more of the Eastern nobility. So these are the ones that have put Artabanus on the throne. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they don't want the Western nobles to get too much power under the Romans. Otherwise, well, that means that the East will be neglected and that's a whole mess. Yeah. And that also explains why a lot of the Roman pretenders we have seen and will see. Like, remember Tyrodates a while ago who was always being a pain. Tyrodates the pterodactyl. Yes. Well, the Roman pretenders generally don't find much support in Iran proper, they just tend to find support in Mesopotamia, where there are a lot of the pro-Roman nobles are living. Mm-hmm. So this shows that there's a bit of a split. I see. But then Artabanus looked at some other elements in the kingdom which he could use to gain more power. He looked at all the vassal kings, like, you know, Media Tarpatene, Karakine, Persia, Elemais, all these lands. And he thought that If they have their native dynasties, they're going to be impartial to whoever rules. They don't care, right? Hmm. But if we place on their throne members of my family, members of the Arsacid royal dynasty, well, then they'll have an interest in keeping the royal family on its place and make sure that they support the correct side during any civil war. So that's Mm -hmm. nice. What he does, for example, he sets up his own brother Vononis as king of Mediatropatene, basically taking Artabanus's place where he was before. And he tries to replace a lot of the more powerful kingdoms with members of his family that he can trust and that he knows will support him mm-hmm. in the case of any instabilities. But also another problem that he's inherited from past rulers is the Greeks. Ah, uh, the Greeks. Yes. Because ever since the Seleucid days, there was a massive Greek population and it is dominant in many of the important cities of Mesopotamia, either because these cities had just been founded by Greeks. So, you know, Tessaphon is descended from Seleucia, which was settled by Greek settlers, generally from Athens. Mm -hmm. And also, it's just because Greeks migrating to the east generally didn't just move to a tiny village nobody had heard of they just moved to a big city where they could seek their fortunes Mm -hmm. and the fact that there are so many greeks and the fact that the seleucids were relatively hands-off in their government of cities they gave a lot of freedoms to them this means that artabanus not only has to deal with the nobles the vassal kings but he also has to deal with these powerful semi-independent cities, which can just rebel. And hey, if they are Greeks, they tend to have friendship with the Romans, and we don't want to just break apart and join the Romans that way. So Artabanus decided to go to a new point of view. He decided to try and systematically reduce the power of the Greeks in his empire to make sure that his own royal authority could be established and safe. 
So what does he do? Well, first of all, he's the first Parthian king to no longer have friend of the Greeks on his coins. Oh, wow. See, I don't like this. I feel like the more friends you can have, the more amicable you can be to other cultures, the better a ruler you can consider yeah. yourself. In my book, at least. That's a fair point. But he like, will I see try to why this is happening, but, you know. Mm-hmm antagonizing uh, an entire culture i don't think is ever like good. yeah it's not ideal we don't love that and you know the reasons that have been put forward for him stopping this is well the first one is that greeks and parthians had been intermingling for 200 years since you know the seleucids fell so mm-hmm. it was basically a meaningless distinction at this point anyway so it doesn't matter but another theory is that Artabanus wants to distance himself as much as possible from the Greco-Roman world and their pretenders. You know, his predecessor was a Greco-Roman implant, so he wants to make sure that everybody knows that, no, we're not in favor of these Greek-Roman people. Hmm. We are keeping the empire for ourselves. Also, there's a very clear example of Artabanus reducing the independence of these cities by appointing his own members to the city councils. Yeah. And there's a very clear example of this in the letter he sent to the city of Susa, where he defends his own appointed man over the ruler that the city elite had elected. Mm -hmm. So it's also cool because that document is at the Louvre now, and I saw it and I got excited and I was like, oh, I I remember this. It's from my research. Yay. That's so cool. So that was fun. And well, the main city where he implemented all these policies, where everything became important, is Seleucia on the Tigris, which is essentially the twin of Tessaphon, the capital. And Seleucia was the largest Greek city of the empire and was just politically important because, well, it's just next to the capital. If they kick up a stink, you'll hear about it. (laughs) And, well, he decides that he'll find a way to get it under control. He'll find a way to remove the privileges of the Greeks. And how does he do that? Well, Mesopotamia was incredibly multicultural at the time because, well, it's the crossroads of everything, so fair enough. And also it had been receiving a number of refugees. It had been receiving a number of refugees from the Roman Kingdom of Judea, Ah. which had recently been absorbed into the empire. And that meant that a lot of Jewish people who wanted their religious independence decided to just migrate to Mesopotamia, where there was a large community. And at this point, well, Artabanus decides that the Jewish minority is just smaller than the Greeks. If I make them more powerful, they'll fight the Greeks for me, and they'll be too busy fighting each other to actually worry the throne. Oh god, did this work? It worked pretty well, actually. Because Artabanus encourages Jewish people to come and populate Seleucia and other Greek cities. And this means that he basically creates ruling councils where a majority is from Jewish people who have been appointed by him. So they owe him their loyalty. And if the Jewish people become too powerful, then the Greeks will go to the king and ask him for help. So the king can say, okay, fine, I'll grant you this, but you owe me a favor. Yeah. So he's becoming very, very powerful and making sure that there isn't as much chaos overall. So that's quite nice. 
We're also told by uh, Josephus the story of two Jewish brothers who became bandit kings in northern Mesopotamia. <laughs> and Artabanus, after trying to suppress them for a while, decided to just deal with them by inviting them to court. <laughs> okay. At first, only one brother came, but, but when he saw that Artabanus wasn't going to kill them all, the second one came as well, and Artabanus just decided to make them official governors and said, just continue to do what you're doing, just pay taxes. Okay, cool. If you can't Have fun. meet them, join them. Yeah. Now, of course, this did not sit well with the Greeks. Of course. Who were losing all their power, which means that this policy was met by a series of anti-Semitic massacres in Mesopotamia in the 30s. That, yeah, which I was, is I was worried about that, yeah. Yeah, not, not good. But yeah, so this is what's happening in internal administration, but how is the external world going? Well, in the meantime, there was a lot of movement in the east. So in 19 AD, a man called Gondofarnes, who governed Sakistan, who was maybe a member of the Suran family, declared independence and took the Saka kingdoms in India for himself and made himself king of kings of a new Indo-Parthian empire. Due to the Roman sources who are telling us this being very far away, we don't know much about the detail, but it looks like Gondofarnes had the Indus River Valley and the southern eastern portion of Iran. And interestingly, there is a tradition among Indian Christians that Gondofarnes was visited by St. Thomas after the crucifixion and was eventually converted, becoming the theoretically first Christian ruler ever. Okay. Yeah. However, unfortunately, it looks like the historical evidence for this is kind of iffy, and we don't really know if that's the case or not. I mean, there is a local Indian group of people who believe this to be true, but we don't have much okay. empirical proof of this. I see. Also, Gondofarnes might be the origin of the name Gaspar for one of the three wise oh. men in the Bible. Interesting. So that's neat. Gaspar. Gaspar, yes. Or Casper, I guess. Casper, yeah. However you want to call him. But Serial, we haven't talked about Armenia for five seconds. Haven't we? Oh my god. <laughs> Yay, fun times. How are they doing over there? Yes, well, they've had their Roman client king for a while, but he dies in 35 AD. Artabanus then decides to place his eldest son, Arsakis, on the Armenian throne. And wrote a letter to Tiberius saying, Give me the treasure that Vanones had taken to Syria two decades ago. Oh, also, I want all the lands that were once owned by Alexander and Cyrus. Um, so please hand them over. Why Thank are we you very doing much. this? I mean, I'm I'm happy to you know f with the Romans, but like, they're not gonna like that. So on what are we basing this? Like on what is our you know <laughs> what are, what is our strategy? What is our backup of this yeah. plan? So it's it's it looks like it's definitely a lot of bluffing or a lot of internal propaganda. So this is the first time that Arnarsakid is on the throne of Armenia and not a local puppet. Mm -hmm. Which shows that Artabanus wants to integrate Armenia further into the empire like other vassal kingdoms with their new Arsakid kings. So it's part of his policy of putting rulers of his dynasty on the throne, making sure that the empire is more consolidated. Mm -hmm. Now, as for the... All, all the lands of Cyrus and Alexander bit, it's unclear what exactly is he, is he means. What do you mean, my friend? 
because we don't know how much the Parthians considered themselves to be the heirs of the Achaemenids, because that statement sort of has precedent in Mithridates of Pontus, who saw himself as an heir to the kings of kings, but it could just be the Roman author who's telling us this, projecting sort of like a literary example of the past, saying, ah, look how arrogant they are, they're claiming all of these things, and we are like the plucky Greeks of old, and we're going to win at last like Alexander did. So it's kind of unclear, and the Arsacids did claim descent from Artaxerxes II, but again, we don't know officially how much they claimed to be heirs of the empire and deserve Egypt and Anatolia and all that. Yeah. One of the books I read, one by Shayagan, says that yes, this is actually part of a concerted policy, mm-hmm. and follows this up basically by saying that you know, since Artabanus is doing this whole we're no longer friends of the Greeks thing, he is reclaiming this past identity as that of the Empire, making sure that everybody realizes this. Maybe he wasn't realistically expecting to just hand all these lands over, especially not mm-hmm. without a fight, but he is at least making the claim that, yes, this is what we're meant to do. It sure is a choice. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and also if you remember in the Shahnameh, the Persian national epic, Alexander is Darius III's secret brother, and Alexander is is shown to be a rather heroic person. So there might Mm -hmm. have been a local tradition that was separate from Alexander the Destroyer, showing him as somewhat of an Iranian figure, anyway. So, yeah, this allows Parthia to embody partially Iranian soul and a Hellenistic soul to make sure that it can claim as much as possible, as much as it wants. So that's nice. Otherwise, as I mentioned before, this might just be a literary device that Tacitus, the Roman author, is using to show Artabanus reaching too far, and so like Icarus, he falls eventually because he had done too much. A similar comparison Mm. had been made for Crassus, you know, with the comparison of him trying to be a new Alexander, so Mm -hmm. it might be just showing hubris and taking over. Well, back to Artabanus, his push towards the west and this grandiose claim, if he made it, might have been a bit too much because the Parthian nobles began to grumble. It's always the nobles. Yes. I can't believe this wasn't just the Romans being like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> no, it was the Parthians as well. It's everyone at the same time. So Parthian nobles are chafing against the consolidation of power that Artabanus is, is giving. They want to be free again. They want a weak king. And it looks like the Western nobility had become more powerful at this point. So they send ambassadors to Tiberius, saying, hey, send us one of the sons of Phraates IV, we'll rise in rebellion to support him. Do we still have sons left? Have you checked the warehouse? Just barely, Serial. Just barely. Because Tiberius sends Phraates IV's youngest son, also called Phraates, who by this point had been in Rome for 45 years, and was probably in his late 60s. And so Tiberius has him sent over to Syria, has this old man shipped over, and then as soon as he gets to Antioch, this Frates just dies. Yeah, because, like, <laughs> what are we doing? Yes, it's just been a while. Guys. Guys. It might have been the fact that you don't get a 60 to 70 year old old man from this time period to travel across a sea and just get to yeah. a very different land. Or it could just be that you don't cross Artabanus. <laughs> Depending on your point of view, 
because according to the Roman sources, one of the rebel ambassadors was poisoned soon after at a feast with Artabanus, so he knew of mm. the plan at least. Yeah. Also, another possibility that is given by one of the sources is that Phraates had become too accustomed to the soft Roman ways, and as soon as he tried to act Parthian, his weak heart just gave out. Lol. Imagine. Because <laughs> he's too soft now, he doesn't he's know. He's too flimsy and perfect yes. in his Roman ways. Yes, these perfumed Romans. Not strong and brave and yeah. brusque like the Parthians. Yeah, Parthians need to be able to bullseye a lion from a kilometer away while riding a horse blindfolded. Romans just so stab things with swords. Like cowards. <sighs> but Tiberius isn't done. He's run out of sons. <laughs> He's run out of Parthian princes, but he thinks, is a grandson of Phraates the Fourth good? Is he, is he okay? Is he fine? Will you guys take a grandson? This grandson is called Tiridates. Again, not a positive name for Parthia. And well, the Romans then send this Tiridates to Syria with Lucius Vitellius, the father of the Emperor Vitellius later on, as governor. At the same time, the Romans convince the king of Caucasian Iberia, which is a small kingdom north of Armenia, to place his brother on the Armenian throne while poisoning the son and heir of Artabanus, Arsakis, who was king of Armenia at the time. Mm -hmm. So Armenia is up for grabs again. Surprise. to nobody. So war it is over Armenia. <laughs> Artabanus sent his second eldest son, Orodes, to try and retake Armenia. But he arrived with a primarily cavalry army in the very mountainous region of Armenia, tried to avoid battle, but eventually was pushed into it by his men, who thought he was being a coward. Orodes was then defeated in single combat by the Iberian king, and was wounded through the helmet, whatever that means Ooh. exactly. Not sure if it was what like a heck? stab through the head, or just a crushing, probably crushing sounds reasonable. It sounds intense, whatever it was. Like, whether it was piercing or bludgeoning, like, just... Yeah, that's a lot of damage. Through the helmet is never a good sentence to hear. Yeah. But fortunately for Orodes, his horse carried him out of range and he was later saved by his bodyguard, which was, I guess, good for Artabanus, who didn't lose two sons. But thinking he was dead, the army fled the field and, well, the Iberians had control of Armenia now. Hmm. This meant that Artabanus decided, well, fine, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to take over. I'll fight them back. So he gathered the main Parthian army and marched against the Iberians. Iberians and Sidon from the province, from the... Yes, from the kingdom of Iberia peninsula. in the Caucasus. Not the Iberian, the Spanish people. I, yeah, I just yes. wanted to clarify. <laughs> yes. There are two different types of Iberians. There are also two different types of Albanians. I don't know why they doubled this up This is all very, very, you know, very simple and helpful. Love but that. Hey. So Artabanus sent his army off into Armenia... And that didn't go well because the Alans, who are a nomadic people from the, the northern Alans? Caucasus. Yes, Alan. Alan. As Alan, seen in the Alan, Barbie movie? Steve. Sorry. Steve. Yes. <laughs> Those. They decided to just cross the Caucasus and they saw the undefended Parthian lands and just decided, okay, I guess we'll just attack. <laughs> I guess, you know, we're here. So there we are. And there are rumors that the Romans may have encouraged these nomads to attack the Parthians while they were distracted in Armenia. So, who knows. 
Well, at the same time, Artabanus was trying to maneuver the Iberians towards a battle and try and retake Armenia. But then he heard a rumor that the Romans were going to attack Mesopotamia directly, like through the direction the Crassus did. So Artabanus doesn't feel like losing the core of his empire, and he withdraws from Armenia, accepting that, fine, it'll just be this third party, it'll be fine. And when he gets to the core of the empire, he sees that the Roman invasion didn't come. The Romans are just staying there. But what actually arrived was the bribes from Rome, which paid all the pro-Roman nobles in Parthia, the Western nobles, and all the Greek cities who wanted to regain their power, and convinced them all to adopt Tiridates as their ruler. So, hooray, civil war time. Uh, okay. <laughs> yes, correct reaction. We're doing fine. This is all, you know. Yes, things could be worse. There could be two pretenders. Could they? It could be <laughs> raining, I guess. Yeah, pretty much. So, Artabanus is now forced to flee east to his main base of support, where his family came from in Sakistan. And he tries to seek support from the Saka nobles uh, and his own personal family. Yeah. At the same time, the Roman general Vitellius escorted Tiridates across the Euphrates, where the cities of Mesopotamia surrendered one by one, and Tiridates was crowned as king of kings by a member of the Surin family. Although we do get an omen, Serial. Omens are oh, always fun. I love omens. Yeah. It was basically saying that the river flooded when Tiridates crossed it. Some people, his fans, interpreted it <laughs> as the river greeting the new king and saying, Ah, welcome, king. Let us hug you. <laughs> sure. Others instead saw it as the river trying to stop his crossing. Which, for any Italian listeners, is very much Il Piave Mormorava. Care to elaborate on that? or like? It's a World War I thing. It happened. Oh, the river was stopping the Austrians. It was a thing. Didn't work out well for anyone, but oh. there we are. But also, Tacitus says there was another omen because the foam of the river seemed to make the shape of a diadem. And that was a great sign for Tiridates. While other people in the camp said that that's bullshit because rivers just make up omens and sweep them away as soon as they're made. So we shouldn't really trust yeah, that. Yeah, like what, are you, what do you mean the shape of a diadem? Did yeah. you throw a rock in the river? Yeah, there was like, a circle in, in the water. Wow. Congratulations. The gods are truly on your side. But the game wasn't over for Artabanus. Despite Tiridates being Mesopotamia, he was short on cash and was forced to besiege a fortress that contained Artabanus's treasure and wider family. Also, many of the eastern satraps did not attend the coronation, showing that he wasn't accepted by everybody as legitimate ruler. So Artabanus knew what the nobility is like. He knew that the nobles don't like any choice they've made, so if he probably just waits five seconds, they'll turn on Tiridates and he can make his way back. That is fair, actually. So, reasonable enough. As we have seen, that is true. So it happens that the nobles, after just a few months, come crying back to Artabanus saying, We are so sorry. We didn't mean to overthrow you. Please come back. This guy's way too Roman. We didn't learn our lesson from last time. Please save they, us. They ask, I just don't, I don't get it. They ask for someone from Rome and then they're like, oh, it's too Roman. Yes. What? Come on. They're not very good. They're not great. They're just terrible. Yeah. 
And yeah, well, apparently they find Artabanus in Hyrcania, clothed in rags and living on what he could hunt. Wow. And uh, apparently Artabanus, when he's reached by the noble contingent, he decides to gather contingents of his of the Saka nomads and heads west, always wearing the rags to arouse sympathy, saying, look what the Romans have done to your king. Let's go take our revenge. I thought it would be like it would make him look more weak. I mean, if he's at the head of a massive army, yeah, I guess it probably helps. But yeah, you can see the values of both points of view. You could either see the value of being like, ah, clothed in glory, saying, ah, look at me instead of the other guy. Or you could show, ah, look how we've mistreated our king. We should mm-hmm. save him. So Artabanus marches all the way to Seleucia without any confrontation. And only there does he finally meet Herodotus. So some in the usurper's court asked him to attack now, while Artabanus' soldiers were still tired from the journey, while the others suggested that he should just run past the Tigris and wait for Roman support. What do you think Tiridates does? Do you think he charges into battle while his enemy is unprepared, or do you think he just withdraws and asks Daddy Rome for help? Yeah, that depends how much of a bootlicker we are and how, like, secure or insecure we are in our own forces. I think he should attack while the enemy is not prepared. Mm-hmm. I think that will give him an advantage. Yes. Nobles have been deserting him for a while. Yeah. If he feels unprepared himself, then I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, Tiridates chose to withdraw. He feels that of course. he can't trust the nobles around him. He's probably going to be betrayed. If he tries to go for a battle, he might just lose. So he should just strengthen his position by getting Roman support. Is he gonna get it? We'll see. Rome doesn't actually care about it. Rome is like a capitalist CEO. (laughs) Yes. Who doesn't care about their own workers, really. It cares about profit, and if you are no longer profitable to support, then we're not gonna. Yeah, pretty much. That is Rome's spirit. And not only that, it's not so much Rome that's the issue, it's that... Tiridates flees west, and at that point, this trickle of nobles that were betraying him becomes a flood, because everybody thinks, wait, he's not even going to fight for us? He's just going to yeah. run home to he's the leaving? Romans? What are, you, what are you doing? And everybody just runs to Artabanus, throws themselves on their faces and say, please, we're so sorry, we didn't mean to. He's an idiot, we recognize that now. Oh, you do? Wow. Are we early enough to be forgiven? Are we? Please? I'll think about it. Yeah. It ends up so bad that Tiridates crosses the border into Syria with just his personal bodyguards, and that's it. His army is gone. (laughs) Everybody's just abandoned him constantly. Wow, that is bad. Yeah. That's kind of sad. And, uh, yeah, so with the usurper gone, Artabanus reoccupies all of Mesopotamia and meets the Roman general Vitellius on a bridge of boats over the Euphrates on their common border. The visual of a bridge of boats is always so impressive. It is very cool, especially on a massive river. That's always very impressive to look at. And there they conclude a deal. We're not sure what the deal was exactly. No, wait, there's no, like, record of it? No, we just see the consequences and we just assume, yeah, this is probably what (sighs) happened. some deal was reached. Yeah, exactly. We just know they meet, and afterwards they're not fighting, and things happen. It'll probably be fine. I feel like it would be kind of important to record what the hell was happening. 
Yeah. Now, the Romans don't want to record deals in case they have to break them later. They don't want anybody pointing to the correct direction. Actually, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know what I'm talking about. But, yeah, despite not knowing the details, we know that Rome formally withdrew its support for Tiridates as ruler of Parthia. So, okay, that's one usurper done. And also, Artabanus, as part of insurance, would send his own son, Darius, to live in Rome as a hostage. Why are we still doing this? No. (laughs) Well, the fun part is that when he gets to Rome, Darius meets the new Roman emperor. It is a no. fellow called Little Boots. Caligula. No. no. <laughs> ah. Yes. Death. So, that's intense. Yeah, I'm sure that went fine. Yeah, Darius will follow Caligula around and will be forced to cross with Caligula while Caligula was wearing Alexander's armor, of course. They cross the bridge of boats that Caligula built across the Bay of Naples. Something that Caligula himself compared to the crossing of Xerxes and Darius into Europe through the Hellespont. Yeah, sure. So. Sure, little delusional psychopath. That's, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure nothing will come to bite Caligula in the butt. He'll be fine and rule forever. Beloved king. Yeah, beloved king. Weirdly, actually, somewhat beloved because he put up a, a bunch of games, right? Yeah. I think Nero is more beloved than Caligula, yeah. but still, yeah. Caligula is probably more damned by the Senate and was actually just kind of a d- as opposed to a, yeah. a full-on monster, but who knows. We love the stories. Yeah. Also, the whole thing that started this war, Armenia, in the end, we decide that the Iberian king that was in Armenia will remain in Armenia. But the Romans will accept the Parthians holding on to the land they had occupied from Armenia. Cool. Cool. Lovely. All right. I was going to be like, did we have a war for nothing again? Sort of. <laughs> yeah. It was close, but not no, quite. No, no, it was... We do have some, some yeah. you know. Also, the Roman and Parthian diplomatic parties had lavish feasts on the boat bridge before each returning to their respective lands. And apparently, Artabanus gave Vitellius a three-meter-tall man called Eleazar, because why not? Because, you know, if you have a three-meter-tall man, just send him to the Romans. I'm sure they'll find some use. They'll know what to do with it, I guess. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. He just showed up one day. Sure, you can go. Okay, but despite Artabanus winning the Civil War, he still has a mess to deal with. It's never easy. Because all the nobles he was trying to constrain and make more loyal, they just rebelled. And all the Greek city-states in his empire, they just sort of rebelled again. Also, it looks like Seleucia kind of declared independence in protest over the reduction of its rights. So it's not great. Which, understandable. Yeah. So Artabanus tried to reconquer it, but just had it under siege for a really long time. Hmm which means that one of the most important cities of the empire is just independent now. Yeah. Which is not great. No. Also, it looks like Babylon massacred their Jewish population a few years before. Oh, God. And the survivors escaped to Seleucia, where they were killed when the rebellion started. I Seriously, Jewish people do not catch a break. No, they do not. 
According to Josephus, 50,000 people were killed. Oh, God. That's terrible. So that's not great. So things are not, you know, no. not going that great. Things were going better before the Civil it, War. We're not, like, in full-on war, but, like, you know. Yeah, no, it's... Nah. This led to more grumbling among the nobles. <laughs> they always have opinions. They're yeah. sure not going to help, but they have something to say. That means that Artabanus fled his own country and sought refuge with the vassal king of Adiabene, who was a man called Izates, who had recently become Jewish, and is interesting because of that. He's one of the few Jewish rulers in this time period. Yeah, Artabanus presented himself to his vassal king as a suppliant without even a horse to ride, but he was then hosted by Izates, off in this kingdom, and uh, this vassal king decided to go to Mesopotamia to speak in favor of the king and say, hey, listen, he's cool, actually. Don't do this. Also, it's kind of unclear why Artabanus is fleeing west instead of east, where his support was in past decades. Why is he doing this? It might be because the Indo-Parthian Empire is expanding in the east and making it more of a war zone, which is making it uncomfortable. Or it could just be that... Artabanus is running to the Jewish people with whom he has a good relationship because he's empowering them. So maybe that helps. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, the nobility chose a man called Kinemus to be king. Hooray. But as we saw before, Izates, the king of Adiabene, acted as an intermediary and tried to get Artabanus back on the throne. And at first the nobles refused because they thought, oh no, this means it's going to start a civil war, it's going to be a whole thing again, let's just keep Kinemus on the throne. Hmm. But Kinemus apparently decided that he'd be happy to abdicate in the end. <laughs> you know, either because he actually Smart. liked Artabanus, because he had been raised by him, or because he saw that, well, I'm going to get murdered if I don't, so I should probably just yeah. give up the throne peacefully and it'll be fine. So Kinemus went to Artabanus, placed his own crown on Artabanus's head, and our king managed to return to the throne. So hooray! We were doing much better than I thought we were going to do. Yeah, it could have been worse. And in exchange for the loyal service returning him to the throne, Izates, king of Adiabene, was granted the city of Nisbis and its surrounding lands, which had once belonged to Armenia. So, hurrah! Artabanus is back on the throne at last, just in time to die peacefully of old age in the year 38. And finally, he managed to keep the throne all the way until his death despite everything going wrong so far. So, thought serial. Yeah, it was much better than I thought it would be. Yeah, it wasn't immediately overthrown, which is good, despite them trying desperately to do so. Yeah. But yeah, he did some good stuff. Not perfect, but hey, it's definitely an interesting change of pace compared to before. So, quite a good shot, at least. Yeah, not too bad. So, are you ready to rate him now? Let's do it. All right, let's go. So our first category is final moments. How interesting was his death? Finally, finally dying on the throne of old age after having just regained it and not dying in obscurity. Eh. It's not terribly interesting. I don't know if to give like a token point for the circumstances and the fact that he gets something. That he got back. Yeah. Yeah. But nah, I, I think I'm uh, I'm on a zero state of mind here because it's it's fine. He just didn't do anything too intense. He just died of old age, which you no know, lucky for him. You wouldn't have expected it based on the rest of his life. But 
it was fine, I guess. What do you think? Mm, the death itself, not that interesting. Apart no, from the fact really. that he did make it back. But, like, that's not... Yeah, the, the context is kind of fun, but the actual death itself is unremarkable. No, I'm okay with your point, but I'm not going to give him a point of mine. Yeah, that's fine. I'm not giving him a point anyway. I'm, all, I'm giving him zero. Oh, I see. Yeah. No. Zero. Yeah, fair enough. So, with a zero to zero, he gets a zero out of ten for final moments. Our next category is Battle Hardness. How good was he at war and fighting? Well, he has his points here. He did a lot. So he started by taking the throne from Venones. He fought a civil war and won it. He lost the first battle, but then he came back and took the whole throne. So that's that's important. That's useful. Yeah. We then have the war over Armenia, where his son loses a battle in Armenia. He sort of tries to win something, but only occupies some forts, doesn't really get a battle. He is forced to retreat back home due to the Alans invading. That's not great. He is then forced to flee from uh, Tiridates, but then manages to reconquer his empire. So that's good. That's positive. Mm -hmm. And then once again, he is forced to flee his empire to his vassal king, Azates. But then again, it's just kind of fine there. Like he just regains the throne through diplomacy. So he does have some fighting, but it's nothing terribly impressive. I feel like it's notable, but not incredible. I definitely give him like a couple points for winning the throne. One point for the Armenian war because he did something, though it wasn't great. He did something. Yeah. Here's he a star. Yeah. Here's a sticker. And I'd say one more point for reconquering the kingdom from Tiridates, which is pretty good. Not great, but... I think overall, yeah, a four is what I'm looking at. I don't know if you have any contrasting thoughts. Not very strong opinions on this one. I think I agree with you. Yeah. So four points from me. Fair enough. So with a four and a four, we get an eight out of 20 for battle hardness. Our next category is scheminess. How good was he at plots and manipulations? Well, he started a civil war. That might be something. Not sure if you want to keep it in schemey. It's not very schemey. He may have killed the 60 to 70 year old pretender that the Romans right. had sent over. <laughs> right, right. Or he, or he might have just, have just passed, old. you know. It happens. That might be an option. Otherwise, in his scheminess, he doesn't do too much. He tries to, to yoink Armenia a few times. Like, whenever the king of Armenia dies, he tries to put a son on the throne. It never really works, but it is kind of under the board. It could be something there. Otherwise, scheminess, it's it's okay. It's nothing yeah. nothing remarkable. Yeah, nothing much. I feel like giving him a one just encompassing everything all at the same time, because otherwise he's not too, too impressive. Yeah. How about you? Are you matching? Yeah, I'm not impressed at all. I don't think I would give him any point. Like, I don't remember anything schemey. Maybe no, the Armenia the thing, mortar. but like, that's pushing yeah. it. Yeah, I think... That's, That's more like, oh, do I have to give it, it for anything? Like, do I have to find something at all? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're staying with a zero then? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. So with a one and a zero, he gets a one out of 20 for scheminess. Our next category is shock factor. How shocking was this man? Uh, we don't hear too much about him, actually. I mean, he is sort of shocking. He is 
withdrawing rights from the cities. He is placing the Jewish people in positions of power over the Greeks. He is trying to bridle the nobility. Those are all things which would be kind of shocking at the time. So I think it's it's worth something. It's worth maybe a couple points, I think. Hmm. As for personal shocking, well, he starts a civil war. He tries to take over from his uncle, Vanonis. Yes, uncle. So he does that. He, you know, he, yeah, he, he. he, he <laughs> You're run, really trying. Yeah, he runs away from his throne to seek refuge at Izati's place, which is kind of shocking. The fact that your king would just run away. He runs away twice and then comes back, which is something. But otherwise, it's not hugely shocking. I'd say I'd, I might go for like a three, considering the whole privilege revoking and imposing power. But that's not super shocking. And then they're running away. But uh, yeah, mm. otherwise, I wouldn't go much more than three. I'll go for a two. I'm not that impressed. I don't find him that shocking. That's fair enough. Yeah, it's not that far. Yeah, he's not the one murdering tens of thousands of people. That's just yep. the consequences of his actions. Sadly. So, like, I mean, having the power that he had, like, in a way, yes, he is the one murdering the people. Cause... Yeah, but he didn't order it. He just said... Yeah, yeah, no, that would, have been, that would have been, like, a completely different <laughs> Yeah, he's telling everybody, level. why don't you just get along? It'll be fine. And then everybody's like, no, but we prefer genocide to getting along. He's like, oh... That that's unfortunate. Well, that's a shame. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. So are you sticking with a two, or are you bumping it up? No, no, I'm I'm sticking with a two. I think. Okay, fair enough. Again, because he was not the one committing said genocide technically on his orders. Yeah, that would have been, you know. Okay, so with a three and a two, we get a five out of twenty for shock factor. Our next category is Aaron Shy. How good was he for the Empire in general and Iran in particular? Well, here he has he has more to talk about. He is doing a reasonably good job. So if we look at his reforms, he is consolidating royal power, trying to take it away from the nobles, make things more stable. Yeah. F*** the nobles. Yeah, he's trying to take power away from the cities, making sure that there isn't a monopoly on them anymore. He's trying to re-establish Parthian authority across the empire, trying to make sure that the vassal kings are now members of the royal family so that they're more easy to control. He also tries to expand in Armenia a few times and tries to expand the royal influence there. He does manage to gain some extra lands in Armenia by the end. And he does manage to kick out the pretenders that attack him. And this sort of stops the chain of constant usurpations that was there until he came on and stopped this. Mm-hmm. He is basically the end of the short-lived rulers chapter because yeah that's amazing that's great he he made sure that we're no longer having the nobles elect a new king every five months and killing them yeah so that's neat he then also ensures that the royal power is spread out across the cities he empowers the jewish population to act as a counterweight to the greek power and make the king more influential in the cities Mm -hmm. on the downside It seems like he's losing some land in the east. We don't know very much about this, but it looks like bits are falling off a little bit. And also, by the end, the civil war with Tiridates has made it so that his reforms aren't nullified, but they're lessened in their effectiveness. 
And also Seleucia is basically independent and is just next door to the capital. And that's not great. Right, I was going to say the, the whole thing with this and with Babylon, right? Yeah, exactly. And then oh, there's a lot of massacres happening under his watch. Hmm. He didn't mean for them to happen, but you're but the guy happening. in charge. You should be the one taking care of this. So ups and downs. I think that overall his is a positive influence on the Empire. But Yeah, I mean, we've been doing so badly too. Like, you need to keep into account that, like, it's been hard. Yeah, the Empire has been crumbling a lot and he's just made sure that things are calming down, stabilizing, making sure everything works better. And uh, yeah, this is essentially the end of this first phase of Parthian history. He is introducing a new phase that will have its fuller realization under one of his descendants, but we'll see later on. So I think it's definitely above a five. I think it's a positive effect. I'm hovering between a 6 and a 7. I'm honestly going for a 6. If the Civil War with Tiridates hadn't happened, probably a 7, because his reforms would have had more effect. Right now, he tried. There are cracks in the facade, but at least he's doing something. I have to say, the fact that we are out of the period of rapidly succeeding, like, short-lived kings Mm -hmm. is a lot of points in my book, because... Yeah, that's Those an important Those periods in thing, empires yeah. are always really difficult, and I'm glad that he was the one to make it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know how much he had to do with it directly, you know? I mean, he held on to power long enough that it stopped yeah, yeah, being yeah. a routine. If you went for a six, I guess I'll, I'll go for a seven. Okay, I think that's fair. Because I agree with the rest, so... So with a six and a seven, he gets a 13 out of 20 for Aaron Shine, which makes him... The most Aaron shiny king since Orodes II, which was a while ago. Our next category is Face of Faces. What do you think this man looked like? Well, I need a moment, but I will tell you. Okay, so Serial has finished their drawing. Let me pick it up and I'll have a look at it. Excuse the lack of, uh, <laughs> you know, inspiration <laughs> Very for nice. this one. So what we have here is the massive three-meter-tall man gifted by Artabanus to Vitellius. And he is there, dressed in nice Parthian garb, long pants, sleeves one into each other. And then he seems to have, like, a very toothy grin going on with long hair and a beard. And Artabanus is there to hide, also in his pants and robe and nice diadem, long hair and a beard, saying... It's uh, a gift. Please take it. <laughs> because we really don't know where to put it anymore, please. Presumably. If it's someone's three meters tall, it's difficult to find houses for them. So there we are. Thank you, Serial. Uh, you're welcome. If any of you want to see this portrait, you can go to, to our episode notes or at our website in Serial's Portrait Gallery. Or you can just join our Patreon and go on the Discord and see it there. Okay, so now let me show Serial what he actually looked like, and they can tell us what they think. Ooh, it's a front-facing one. Yes, it's nice Fun. to have some variety there. Yeah, very distinguished, like, regal. Yeah, I, I like the nose. Like it. It's very strong. Yeah. So it's a front-facing portrait on a coin. A bit eroded because, you know, this 
probably has been in a lot of places and gone from hand to hand. Yes, a man with like shoulder length, wavy hair and a downward facing mustache and a beard that is cut like on a straight line slightly below the chin. Yeah, it's not very pointy. Yeah, instead of a pointy beard is like, you know, truncated. Mm-hmm. And kind of sad eyes, you know, with like downward lids. That's true. <laughs> and a long nose. Tired. Yeah, and the robes that like cross in the middle, like I usually draw on my portraits mm-hmm. with like, you know, of the shirt. Yeah, and I can't really see the diadem, I assume is there. Yeah, it's basically there are the little wavy bits next to his shoulders are the end of the diadem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can sort of see a little bit around the top of his head, but it's eroded off. Cool, I like this one. It has a lot of personality. Yeah, I think it's fun. I like it. It's not like my favorite ever, but I think it's it's worth something. What are you thinking for points? As always, I constantly forget what points I give things. So, I don't know. Whatever I gave something else that I was like, eh, yeah, it's cool. Like, it's nothing incredibly remarkable. But. You gave a six to Musa? Yeah, then, then something similar to that. Yeah. It was also, like, I, was, I was also thinking about of, a six for him. Slightly out of the ordinary, but also not like, wow. Yeah, know. like, it's a bit unusual. It's nothing crazy. I think a six is reasonable. Yeah. You matching? Yeah. Okay, yep. very nice. So, with a 6 and a 6, he gets a 3 out of 5 for Face of Faces. Our next category is lengthiness. How long do you think he reigned? Uh, well, a while, actually, right? Yep. Um, I'll say 10 years. Well, how long did the previous one reign? Uh, the previous one lasted 6 years, Bononi's. Hmm. No, of which he was I'll only there for... for four years. Yeah, I'll go for 20 years. Okay, that's pretty good. Relatively, yeah. Yeah, it went pretty well. It was 26 years, actually. He managed oh, a nice. very long reign, for, for these standards at least. So he ruled from 12 to 38 AD, giving him a total of 26 points divided by 10. That gives us a lengthiness of 2.6 out of 5. And that brings us to the final score, which is a 32.6 out of 100, which places him just under Diakis, so 0.2 points below him, and above Astyages, so he's in the median club. But he's among the higher Arsakids. He's in the upper half, let's say. He's nowhere near the heights of Mithridates the Great, or anybody with that name, but he's doing a solid job, at least. Mm-hmm. And that leads us to the final question, which is to say, is he reformist enough? Is he civil warish enough? Is he gifting a three meter tall man enough to be mm-hmm. called a Shahan Shah? Or is he just a Shahan Well, he did end the terrible period of uh, very bad, no good. Yes, that's fair. You know. Yeah, I'm in two minds about this. I feel like it's interesting that he's managed to reform these things and improve the empire i don't know if it's enough i feel like there isn't a certain spark which makes it be like ah yes definitely i think it's he did a good job he was a solid ruler had Mm. some drama but none of it is just saying ah yes this is the amazing this is the best pick me pick me what are you thinking 
Yeah, no, that's fair. I wasn't that impressed. It's just, I wanted your, your take on it because, you know, still important. Mm-hmm. But I think we have others who are much more interesting. Yeah, exactly. He's okay. He did a good job. Yeah. But I feel like... Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, Artabanus, but you are a Shahana. You can head off into the desert, speak to Venones, and tell him that, hey, at least you managed to fix the Empire. You may not have succeeded, but you did well enough. You tried. Yeah. So there we go. That is the end of today's episode. Thank you all for joining. We hope you'll come with us next time where we talk about his heir, Vardanis the first. So another new name. We'll see. Will he manage to hold on to everything that's happened? Will he just have it fall back into noble anarchy again? We'll see what it is. In the meantime, if you want to support us, there are many ways to do that. You can support us on Patreon. We'd like to thank our two new patrons, Brooke K. and David Whiteley, or Whitley, sorry, don't know. <laughs> we try our best. Yes. If you join us there, you will, you'll be able to get a series of new extra episodes. We've done Mithridates of Pontus, Tigranes the Great, Hanwudi of China, and we'll be getting soon a series on ancient Greek figures that had to do with the Achaemenid Empire. So Themistocles, Alcibiades, Xenophon, a bunch of interesting people. If instead you'd rather not support us monetarily, that's fine, but we do appreciate if you can give us a review on your podcast app of choice, because that helps other people know that we exist and spread the word. And um, yeah, I think that's all we have to say for this time, so without much further ado, we hope you have a lovely week, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Take care.